When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's going on, Wild Black family? You know when you hear my voice at the beginning of the episode, there's something special coming. This is it. Two-part episode this week. We're talking about prisons, reform, public defenders, education. We're talking about a lot of stuff that matters. And some of it's going to come to you in ways you've probably never considered. It's a panel interview today, and there was so much amazing, needed, dope-ass information, we decided to break it into two episodes. I don't want to give you much, so starting now, tune in to episode one from our conversation on prisons and education. I think the one thing I would say is that I would want to disrupt the idea that college inside prison is about rehabilitation. Mm. That's a red herring. Mm. It just makes us feel good about what we're doing to say somehow we are rehabilitating or fixing people that went in. That's an enormous distraction to what prison really is, which is systemic injustice. Yeah. And what when you go inside prisons and you meet them with college education that they never had an option of on the outside, you're just granting human rights. Mm. Education awesome. is a human right. Yeah. It is a human it's right. It's a human right. It's a human right yeah. and Absolutely. a civil right. And both of those have been denied. 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 Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back, welcome back. Ooh, today's episode. I I don't even know what to say. I'm not gonna say my normal. You can say what? They're all amazing. They're they're all dope. But man, today. I almost said it. I almost said it's special. Anyway, it's, you did. You because you, you said it. Damn, it's good though. It's yeah. good because they are. I'm trying to change <laughs> it up. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to bring a new energy to this thing. I, I don't want people to be able to predict me that much. <laughs> Listen, dope is dope. Dope is dope. Dope is dope. And today <laughs> is dope. Let me tell you, we are talking. I'm not going to say what we're talking about. The the topic itself is going to be one of those that is slightly infuriating, mm. but also inspiring. It's going to be an amazingly powerful episode that's so, so needed. But it might be a little triggering. And just being honest, we're talking about the American prison system today and the level of education that is or is not happening. And any time, at least in my opinion, that you deal with the American prison system, I think you have to talk race and politics a bit. Absolutely. Racial yeah. disparities, mm-hmm. right? You, you have to touch on those things because they matter. So during this conversation today, you'll hear stats and other facts that may bother you. But I hope that you're able to hear the passion, the direction, and the inspiration that's coming from each of our guests because they're passionate about the space. And not only do they work in the space, they are working for change and betterment of the space. So keep that in mind as we jump in. Now, I want to start with a few facts. You know me, I go look these up. Don't hold me to them. But our guests know these numbers. So if I say anything wrong, I am confident they are going to jump in and correct me. 
We need that. We need to be able to hold each other accountable and make us better. So let me start. As a country, we make up about 5% of the global population, but about 25% of the world's prison population. Correct, so correct. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite stat. <laughs> In that, black folks are five times more likely to be stopped without cause by the police. And one in about every three black young men can expect to be sentenced to prison in their lifetime. That's compared to one in six Hispanic boys and one in 12 white. Correct. Those numbers are just, oh, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. Like when you realize that. As of February this month, 2022, well, let me not say this month. This, I don't know exactly when, when this is going to drop. <laughs> but it's February as I sit here tonight. The racial breakdown provided by the Federal Bureau of Prisons is as follows. Asians make up 1.5% of the prison population, but they only make up 6% of the U.S. population. That means 19 per 1,000 are in jail. Black folks, 38.4% of the prison population. But as you know and hear often from us, only 12.4, someplace between 12 and 13% of the U.S. population, which means about 465 per 100K. And then white Americans, 57.7% of the prison population, but also 57.7% of the U.S. population. All these numbers still good? They are. Look at me. Look at you. Winning a little bit today. (laughs) So I wanted to share those because I think it's important that you have a baseline before we go into this episode and you understand what the situation truly looks like. But I've been talking way too much already. And with that, I want to make sure that you meet our guest today. I'm going to start with Mr. Winfield Murray. You've met him before. He was here talking about critical race theory not too long ago. Oh, do ladies first. Do ladies first. Well, so the trick here is I'm going to bring you and then you're going to bring them. Oh, I'm going to. That's the trick. All right, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) That way I can avoid messing up any names. Okay. As long as possible. That 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 was so good. That was smart. I'm going to employ that method myself at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Winfield, brother, tell the folks a little bit more about you. Reintroduce yourself to the Wild Black audience. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here this evening. So my name is Winfield Murray. I am a professor at Morehouse College where I teach constitutional law, race and law. And we find out tonight he's the author. He just threw that in on us. (laughs) Snuck it in. I'm getting to that. Slow down. (laughs) I I was on a roll where I teach constitutional law, race and law, and moot court. And I also advise pre-law students. Um, Recently, I published a book. And when I say recently, Recently, I mean today. Mm. It was released today. Yes. Um, great book called Paddock uh, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Yes. I'm very excited. Um, in addition to that, I have been an attorney for 21 years at this point, if you can believe that. And I started off as a prosecutor and have done a lot of different things uh, since that time, really non-traditional, including uh, starting Atlanta's community court. So with that, that is me, but I'm more excited about introducing you to uh, the people that I brought with me, which includes Sarah Higginbotham. Want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Sarah Higginbotham. I teach uh, writing and Shakespeare and early modern literature at Emory University's Oxford College. I write about the violence of the law. I write about how law is violent in response to violence and what kinds of ethical differences there are between those two forms of violence. And in 2008, I co-founded a nonprofit called Common Good Atlanta that now teaches inside four state prisons, three men's prison, one women's prison, um, teaching college classes, accredited college classes inside prison, about 60 faculty from around the Georgia area. And then we also have a downtown class. Uh, We partner with Gideon's Promise, (laughs) where um, people who are system impacted in any way, maybe they've served time, maybe they just have felony conviction, they can come to Gideon's Promise on Tuesday night, take free college classes, home-cooked dinner, all the books are paid for, professors there to support them, and homework help for their kids. Also, MARTA. Marta cards. So trying to take away some of the barriers that system-impacted folks have, even once they get out. System-impacted folks. I like that. Yeah, that's a whole vibe right there. Sarah, welcome to Wild Black. Thank you. Sarah Higginbotham. (laughs) Thank you. 
And so I just have to say that I teach with Common Good Atlanta and it has been a totally, completely life-changing experience. So I met Sarah and our other guest, Ilham Askia, in an organization called Leadership Atlanta. Where we went through that together and it has been one of the best things that has ever happened to me in my adult life. And so next we have Ilham Askia. I am Ilham Askia. Thank you all for having me. I am very excited and energized because I was a little tired (laughs) as I was driving up 400 to get here. Um, Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. I am Ilham Askia. I have the honor of serving as executive director of a national nonprofit called Gideon's Promise. Our goal is to transform the criminal legal system by building a movement of public defenders across the country to provide quality representation to people who are impacted by the system. Uh, We started the organization in 2007 because we saw the need of really well-intentioned recent law school grads going into very dysfunctional criminal legal systems to represent people and quickly burning out and leaving the profession or becoming part of the problem that we see now with mass incarceration. So our organization its whole purpose is to transform the entire system. And the only way to do that is to empower the people in the courtroom who tell the story about the people that are accused to humanize those individuals. And so we have grown very rapidly in our 15-year existence. We started with two states, two actually two cities, New Orleans and Atlanta, with 16 lawyers. We now have offices in over 27 states wow. and have trained over 1,500 lawyers um, in the last 12 years because I have to take the pandemic out, but we still train lawyers during that. So we are rapidly growing. The need is there. There are a lot more students who are coming out of law school and lawyers who are actually in the profession who want our services. And so our purpose really is to humanize individuals who come into the system because the system is set up to strip every ounce of dignity that you have away. And the only advocate in that courtroom is the public defender that stands next to you. So thank you so much for having me. Wow. Ilham Askia. Yes. And just so I you know, everyone calls me Illy. Illy. So um, you are yes, welcome to call me Illy. That just made your life Illy. a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> everyone so calls personal. me Illy. I want to say a name right. That's why I'm practicing. Yeah. I'm trying to illy. I can't mess I that appreciate up. that. <laughs> can I just also oh, say? Oh, can I say one thing? Uh oh, I'm see, interrupting. There you, you. go. Uh oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> what what Mr. Murray failed to mention? I was about it, to. Were you going to? Yeah, I was about okay. to. So y'all should have saw the look. Like, are you going to do it or what? Right. That was a neural link right <laughs> there. We didn't even see it. <laughs> he talked about. Well, I got a little jealous. Because he talked about his work with Sarah, who I love dearly, mm-hmm. but he also works with Gideon's he tried Promise. To play you. I saw right, it. he tried to play tried me to play a little you. bit, and I won't do it too much because he actually signs my paycheck. <laughs> he is actually uh, uh, the vice chairman of our board of directors. So technically, even though I tell our board a lot what to do, he is my <laughs> boss. And so Winfield does tell me what to do, which was to be here tonight. I, I did, <laughs> I did, I did. And, and can, absolutely. And can I just say that I, you know, love Gideon's Promise, like. I I love the organization and the work that they do because when you talk about 1,500 attorneys being trained, just think about how many cases each one of those attorneys touch, right? So thank you for having us. So today we we have got Common Good Atlanta, who is all about education, 
to those. What, what was the, how did you put it? What was the wording that you used? Impacted. System impacted. Yes. System impacted people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Education to system impacted folks. And we've got Gideon's Promise, which is all about creating stronger, better, more equipped public defenders who handle, I think I saw on your website, 80%. 80% of the people accused of a crime, 80% who are wow. accused of a crime, qualify for a public defender. Wow. 80%. Like, I'm a numbers guy. and Four out of five people, because some people are visual, mm-hmm. four out of five people who are arrested in this country qualify for a public defender. That means they, they live below a certain poverty line, depending on the state that they're being arrested. It makes oh, me wonder real quick, that. like, what is the disparity in pay from a def- <laughs> public defender handling 80% yeah. to the private attorneys handling 20%? Mm. Like, I wonder what that disparity looks yeah, like. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That's the one stat I don't know, the disparity between the, the private bar and the public bar, but mm-hmm. I do know in the prosecution side, public defenders get a third of what, le- sometimes less than a third of what the prosecutors uh. got. And the prosecutors have a full investigative team. They have the police force to investigate crimes and things. Public defenders may have, in some of my offices, one investigator for five lawyers representing 8,000 people annually. Where's the equity in that Uh, is the mm -hmm. thing. You know, and I've mentioned when I first started that I started off as a prosecutor. But, you know, for me, going into a courtroom and seeing people that looked just like me day in and day out, was overwhelming. Like, I literally started becoming physically ill after only having that role for two months or wow. so. And so having the opportunity to sort of change that and start Atlanta's community court was very important to me. But I just think about, you know, how many resources we had as prosecutors right. and then looking over at the defense table and the revolving door because they were just getting burned out day in and day out without having the proper support. And I'm so thankful that your organization is providing that type of support. And I appreciate mm-hmm. you, Winfield, because, you know, when you told me, when we first met, you told me we were, you were a prosecutor. You I, like would, I did not like you. Yeah, I know And that. so I wasn't going to talk to you. Yeah. But when you told me about community court and, and some of the preventative things that you were trying to do to keep people out of the system, diversion programs. If you mm-hmm. have a drug problem, send them to a drug rehabilitation program. If you have mental health, send them to a mental health clinic. And we are using this criminal legal system to manage our social yes. problems mm. as a country versus being preventative, right? Mm. You know, Sarah mm. does some great work in the prison and it's with education. How outstanding those young men and men in prison would have been if they had the education prior yeah. to That's right. Right. That's right. being That's right. put in the system. Absolutely. And so what we try to do at Gideon's Promise is not just train our lawyers how to legally represent someone, but also understand and be client-centered, understand what their needs are so that maybe you can divert them away from the prison system. But of course, the Goliath of the criminal justice system in America is a whole nother subject. But um, there's a way to do this. So we help them tell the story of why this person has come to the criminal legal system in the first place. And if you unpack it, it's usually poverty, mental health, substance abuse are usually the main things that yeah. are are the 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 common denominators lack of education lack, lack of, of education resources yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know like in a political debate you know if you mention the person's name then they have to talk so you mentioned me as a prosecutor so now I have to talk and I just want to say for the record <laughs> oh, that boy. I was only a prosecutor in name only for about 33 days okay? <laughs> <laughs> but after that you know I saw the light I'll give right you that. okay all right Cool. Yeah. Well, one of the things, and and listeners, you know this, we love to make sure that you are connected to our guests. So we have our wild black shit. A little bit different today. We're changing it up just a little bit for today. All right, brother, you got it. You want me to do it? I got it. Cool. All right. So (laughs) still three questions. No, that hadn't changed. The first question, and I I want each of you to answer this, and let's be brief. I already see what this room is about here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let Sarah go first. We'll let Sarah go first. We'll let Sarah go first. I'm sorry. Because no. I know my wife be like, if you don't shut up. <laughs> my husband does the same. Sound bites. Okay. So right. you want sound bites. I got you. You need the executive summary. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think is every statement doesn't have to start with, well... It's not that simple. I have to. Right. A coming after (laughs) Well, now that you let me stop. All right. So, first question there's a lot of good TV out there, past and present. 
And, and some of the scenes that we see on TV just really hit you. They move you. They take you someplace. They grab a hold of you. So for each one of you, tell me one scene from one television show, sitcom, that has stuck with you. I don't know pop culture, so you go first and I'll think of one. Mr. Shakespeare. That's all Can I do a Shakespeare play? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... That's a hard one, too. That's a, what, for Shakespeare? Or for, no, that, that, oh, that's a hard question. question. That, that, yeah, it would be nice if we got the questions in advance. Okay, so a few years ago, I went to New York to see Merchant of Venice, really controversial play oh, yeah. by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, not just anti Semitic, has a lot of racial, a um, lot of racial negativity in that play. And Al Pacino was playing Shylock. He's probably 70-something years old. And at the end of Merchant of Venice, there is a supposed resolution where they offer this Jewish man to be converted as a Christian. And in Shakespeare's day, that would have seemed like a good deal, right? So what the way Al Pacino did that, though, in the 21st century, is that when they made that offer to him, they didn't do it as an offer. They had members of um, the Venetian Catholic Church drag 70-year-old Al Pacino onto the stage. There was a pool there, and they waterboarded him. Oh, wow. Never forgotten it. So that was the baptism, right? That was using this. Oh, oh, was what did you say? A waterboarding was. Yeah, they held Al Pacino's head underwater until his legs were flailing, and then they finally let him up. And and I, you know, so it's not a funny scene, but Mm -hmm. it's a moment when you take a work of art that's been controversial and that has targeted certain Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. and you. Transform it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what I saw that production control doing. Of the narrative. You mm-hmm. take yeah. control. You, yeah. And yeah. even rename the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And to see, you know, a, a, an actor like Al Pacino do that to really show us the violence of what was involved in that act, I've never forgotten it. Listeners, for you, The Merchant of Venice is a 16th century play written by William Shakespeare in which a merchant in Venice named Antonio defaults on a large loan provided by a Jewish moneylender. Shylock. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. You've learned something now. <laughs> All right. So I will say that I have started something. I've started going back and um, watching like these old Norman Lear shows, right? So yeah. like the Jeffersons oh. and um, Sanford and Son. And so there are two things that stood out to me. First of all, the honesty that was projected mm-hmm. in those shows. And so I saw one that I considered, you know, particularly... Um, it sort of touched me. You know, I have a heart, Illy. Did you Do know you? That? Yes. Okay. And so... <laughs> Notice he directed that to me. <laughs> we we, we touched his heart. Uh, <laughs> you, did, you, did, you, did you all see that? Okay. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see it, but I bet you felt that in his words. <laughs> and so um, this particular one was with uh, George Jefferson. He had been giving Christmas presents to this um, apartment. And Louise found out about it and she kept asking, you know, is it another woman? Why are you giving money and gifts to, you know, this particular apartment? And come to find out, it was where he was raised, right? Mm. And so there was a family there and he said he never had a good Christmas in that apartment. And so he wanted to make sure that any child that grew up in that apartment always had a good Christmas from that point forward. He never you know, even told his family that that was something that he was doing. And that sort of resonated with me because, you know, I do a lot, you know, for the kids at Morehouse, not because, you know, it's for me, it's for them, you know, because I Mm -hmm. think it makes such a difference Mm -hmm. for them. It makes their life a little bit easier. And then the other thing is, is that I saw um, Sanford and Son. 
And they went to court because I think Lamont had gotten a speeding ticket or something like that. And when they went to court, you know, Fred pointed out the fact that everyone in that courtroom was black. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this is way back in 1974, mm-hmm. And we still have the same issue. Yeah. And that's what it was like when I went. Like everything that Fred Sanford said in that episode is exactly what I thought when I was in that courtroom in 2003, 2004, mm-hmm. 2005, 2006, is that, you know, there's no one else. You would think that there are no other people that live in that particular city because everyone in that courtroom is black. Yeah. So I just thought that how, how crazy that is, is that, you know, a Norman Lear episode from 1974 would be so on point and things haven't changed that much in all yeah. this time. Because it's, it's been so. normalized. We're yeah. so yeah. used to seeing mm-hmm. it's normalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that, that is the expectation now. Man, I didn't expect it to be that the answers to be that doggone good. I was yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm deep answers to the wild down but, the steps. Uh, right, right. <laughs> well, when we start off talking about Shakespeare yeah, and waterboarding, yeah. I mean, yeah. you gotta come with something. <laughs> That's a whole different wild black shit right there. <laughs> wild black. We wild redefined wild it a little bit yeah. in this episode. <laughs> All right. So today's episode for me is, is critically important because I think this is one of the episodes that I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about the prison system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of opportunity for people to do a lot more in support of than they realize today. Mm-hmm. So the next question that I want to ask you is this. For each of you, and Illy, we'll start with you this time. Of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to boil down your expectation for this episode and what listeners should get from it into one thing, what would that one thing be from your perspective? What listeners should get from this? Yeah. They need to go and look up the organizations that are represented <laughs> in this podcast. Because, I mean, we as nonprofits, we are terrible about bragging on ourselves. Mm. And there's a lot of good work. And we have the information. Don't rely on TV yeah. and the media. Yeah. Because, as you know, like things, they create a narrative that's very different from what Sarah and Winfield and I see every single day. So I think looking up what we do in organizations like us and volunteering, I mean, that's really, and learn, educate yourselves, educate yourselves. And and real quick, just to point out. Don't look at me like that, Winfield. Well, because, okay, I just have to chime in just for you and well, for both of you, is that, you know, the other thing is, is that you're out here doing all of this great work, but we can't do this great work unless you not only know about it, but you're contributing, right? We and, need funding. Yeah, because nonprofits, <laughs> I mean, like the work that you do, like, I'm sorry. You're but right, boss. I should have said funding. Yeah, politicians just aren't just giving, giving us everything, everything that we need. need. That's right? true. Like right. Yeah. You're right, boss. I should have said funding as, yeah, as my role as executive director. Funding. Mm-hmm. They should get Give us funding. <laughs> and, and, and before yeah, we, we go to Sarah, I'm going to add, keep in mind, this is Gideon's Promise and Common Good Atlanta. And as always, you can find links in our episode description that will drive you directly to each specific site. Sarah, ma'am, what's your answer? I think the one thing I would say is that I would want to disrupt the idea that college inside prison is about rehabilitation. Mm. That's a red herring. Mm. It just makes us feel good about what we're doing to say somehow we are rehabilitating or fixing people that went in. That's an enormous distraction to what prison really is, which is systemic injustice. Yeah. And what when you go inside prisons and you meet them with college education that they never had an option of on the outside, you're just granting human rights. Mm. Education is a human right. It is a human right. It's a human right. It's a human right and a civil right. And both of those have been denied. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Hopefully, in that moment, someone listening realized that they had been believing a lie this entire time. Yep. Thank you for that. Winfield, brother, what you got? The thing that I would like to say with respect to Common Good Atlanta is that when I went into the prison and started teaching for the first time, I went in with my own stereotypes and biases. And I thought Mm -hmm. I was going to have to water down the lesson plans because they didn't have the same education as the students that I'm teaching at Morehouse. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Like if anything, I had to level up the way that I Mm -hmm. taught because they were, first of all, so grateful to have 
professors from Morehouse, from Spelman, from the value. Exactly. They see, they understand the value, and they take ownership of learning in a way that is so different from other students, you know, who just sort of know they're going to have this type of education. And so I would say that with respect to the prisoners themselves is that we have a lot of stereotypes, a lot of biases of what we think a prisoner is like. And I, I would just say most of it is couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm with that. Yeah. I'm with that. I want to jump in and, and ask the first question. And before I do, <clears throat> the best questions come from those who already know the answers to Right. You already know what people need to know. You've already asked all of these questions yourself. So as we go through this episode, if there is something that you think needs to be shared, share it. Like, I ask, don't, don't wait on us because we are, are new to this space, right? I've researched this for two weeks. You all have done this for years. So that means you already know the outages. You already know what you need people to walk away with. So make sure that throughout this interview— don't let Art and I be the bottlenecks. Don't let us be the reason this interview isn't great. Like, I really want you all to jump out with the information that you all feel needs to be shared because we'll never get there. So I'm going to start with this first question. I think it's a big question, right? We'll find out in a second. You often hear people in the midst of problem solving say, we're here now, so what do we do, right? I want to take some time and talk about the first half of that statement. We're here now. Where are we now? Like, what is the situation that we find ourselves in? I, I believe we are back in, in the 1950s and 60s with, you know, there's an author, James Foreman Jr. He wrote this book, Locking Up Our Own. It's a phenomenal book. It uses Atlanta and D.C. as the case study of Black leadership, Black-led cities that in order to help and protect communities that were impacted by the war on drugs Mm -hmm. and people being arrested, some of these policies and reactions actually hurt the very people that they were trying to protect. And so I say, where are we now? I feel right now in this moment, the tough on crime narrative is resurfacing as major cities are starting to see issues with crime rise as a result of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so where are we now? We're going back to the 50s and 60s, which led to the mat start was the onset in the Nixon era to this whole tough on crime that mm-hmm. Reagan inherited and every all of the people, the successors after that. And so if we're not careful, we're going to end up locking more people and adding to the mass incarceration problem. So right now, I feel like we're back in the six, a modern days civil rights movement mm-hmm. is where we are now. Mm-hmm. Billy, I actually want to dig on that just a little bit more. One, I agree with you. Two, for the person sitting listening right now who says, eh, are we? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Or, they don't uh, believe you. crime is really bad. Right, right, right. Yeah. How do you break through to them? How do you make them understand what you just said? I ask people all the time is to ask yourselves why. Because as a, a society, we react. We, we are reactive in nature, human beings. But we never say why is crime so high, mm. right? Why are people just arbitrarily taking baseball bats and knocking (laughs) windows for no reason. Why are our children being locked up for things that when we were younger, it was a counselor or it was mom Mm -hmm. or dad or a parent coming to school. Now our first reaction is to call a police officer in an element. We're, We're arresting children, first graders. And so, you know, somebody's like, eh, like you said, eh. But why? Why are you in? Why? Why are you not? Resp- why are you now outraged that this happened? Because it doesn't impact you. It doesn't affect you until your child, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father is arrested. And in most communities, some communities that will never happen. But when I've had affluent people who now donate to us, it's because 
they felt what we feel every single day. And so I really think it goes to the why and make people own it. Like answer the question, why did you, why was your response in? Yeah. What made you walk across the street on the other side of the street? Yeah. You know, so. Well, That's can I, I just chime in on of that Of course one. you can, Winfield. Okay, so. <laughs> this is y'all show. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like I mentioned. We don't get okay. to be together often, so. No, we don't. Yes. No, we don't. <laughs> so I, I actually think it goes back to something you said earlier, that, you know, when you're looking at why people commit crimes, it's usually because of mental health issues or alcoholism or, you know, substance abuse Poverty. issues. Poverty. Yeah. And what happened during COVID? People lost jobs. You know, if there is uh, a mother who was working at a restaurant and she's got four kids and the restaurants are closed, what's happening? Mm-hmm. What's happening yeah. to that family? You know, I often think, too, when you're thinking about even education, right? If you have a family of four and you only have one computer and you have someone that's in the second grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, and 11th grade, Mm. they can't all use that computer during the virtual learning. So what's happening Mm. to those kids, right? Mm -hmm. Because they can't all be on that same computer learning, right? So I think sometimes when we, you know, are quick to condemn, we also have to realize that there's a lack of understanding. We aren't always able to put ourselves in that person's shoes because we don't think about it in those terms. We don't know that this is what's happening and how it's impacting people. Like the the pandemic has been going on for two or three years and it has impacted lives. Empathy. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. Sarah was talking about the, the, the men she works with in the prison and just, it's just the level, it's empathy. It's understand, like the reason Sarah is good at what she does is because she has a level of empathy. And I think that's the why, the eh, Mm -hmm. response or, doesn't affect me or yeah that happened but so what it happens everywhere it's mm-hmm. we are we are we have lost empathy and i think that's one of the things that we work with our public defenders no i do not know what it's like to walk in a i'm a black woman right i do not know what it's like to be a black man i have a black son but i can never understand like i have a level of empathy but i don't know what it's like and it's i think dope we as hell, need to, but scary. right and when people say oh you should walk in my shoes they can never walk all mm-hmm. of our shoes right. are different mm-hmm. but i have a level of empathy when winfield says to me this happened to me i was followed yeah. right sarah says i'm uncomfortable as a woman right walking at night in the parking lot right so you have to have this empathy and i think that's what we are lacking as a society yeah. it's just human the human di- the human yeah. kind the kindness part and everyone says oh illy that's so wishy washy i don't care okay but you care when it happens to somebody mm-hmm. you love mm-hmm. and everybody loves at least somebody mm-hmm. right 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 so sarah i, w- I want to go to you real quick yeah i would want to pick up on both the why and the empathy because what a college education does is is teach you to ask why. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it teaches you that rather tend to just react to whatever's in the water, right? It teaches you to step back from that situation and look at the structure. And I think that stepping back and asking why, right? So that, you know, like we want to say, oh, well, they're going to get a good job. People get a good job when they go to college. College does more than that, yes. mm-hmm. right? Yes. It equips yeah. you to be able to see structures that were previously invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say, and I, research backs this up quantitatively, that reading makes you empathetic. The book you've written, that's when we know that. We know that when kids, adults read, especially when they read about people who are unlike them, right. they can immerse themselves in those stories and begin to have more empathy. And empathy is one of the most pro-social traits, according to psychologists, you can have. So, I absolutely love the connection you made, right, between empathy being the answer and how to go get it, right, the the reading. One of the things that we see come back in questions inside of our episodes is often how, how and where, right? Because the world we live in right now, there is a ton of information the moment you open your computer, Mm -hmm. right? The the internet is vast Mm -hmm. and it is often unchecked. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you find credible information? So, Sarah, I want to stay with you on this question. How do you advise people go get great experiences that allow them to be more empathetic to the people around them? 
Where do they go? What do they read? How do they gain that level of understanding and connectivity that will allow them to be more empathetic to those unlikely? First, even before reading, I would say proximity. Mm. So Brian Stevens says, you know, there is power Mm -hmm. in proximity. And so proximity also fosters empathy. Mm -hmm. When you are close to someone, when you spend time with someone, have a conversation with them, you know, meet them for coffee at work, someone unlike yourself. Um, That is how empathy is fostered. In in terms of study and reading, I would say the same thing. Mm. You know, um, so I've written a book about children's books. I've written a book about human rights in children's literature, co-authored with a law professor at Georgia State. Feel free to tell them what it is. It's imagination and the narrative of law, Oxford University Press. Um, but the truth is, is that some books can actually impede your, your empathy. Yeah, absolutely. If they... Yeah perpetuate minimizing stereotypes, right? Or if you're only reading books that feature people who are exactly like you. So the real power in reading comes from, from purposefully seeking out books written by books featuring people who are unlike you, different. And that's, there is so much power in that. Yeah. You know, we we know people throughout history who have educated themselves, even without a college program, without Morehouse College, right? Mm-hmm. Just from being attuned to books. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. so one question I, I want to ask, and I think it's really important. I wanted to wait until we began having this conversation. Every superhero out there, Superman, Batman, they have this origin story. Wonder right? Woman. Thank exactly. you for that. I was wondering when the woman superhero was coming. Yeah, I'm in there. We're going to work on D-E-N-I. Next, I <laughs> she was actually next. But, but in that, right, Superman lost his family and his planet. Batman lost his parents. Wonder Woman was in a, an area where she had to separate in order to be great and to stand out and, and to win, right? And everyone has their origin story. And that's always associated with some type of superhero behavior. I tend to believe that the work that you all do is superhero type behavior. So in that, like, what is each of your origin stories? Man. Art, you got me in trouble, too. No, that was a, that was a, that was a hell of a question right Once there. Once again, I would have liked these questions in advance. <laughs> <laughs> The origin story. No, I'm not going to kick. If I kick off, no. You you guys kick. Go, Sarah. 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 (laughs) I just talked, so it's your turn. But but Winfield and I talk a lot. Sarah, you go. You know, we'll take up a whole room. And did you see the way she kicked that off at me? Like the the attitude? I was like, now I'm being bullied by two people. I'm I'm over here. I'm out of my business over here. So I think I told part of my story. um, Honestly, how I got here was in that courtroom, mm-hmm. being that prosecutor. And, you know, to your point, Sarah, it really was, you know, just sort of really being overwhelmed um, with that experience, right? And wanting to do something that was going to make the situation better. None of the other solicitors or prosecutors wanted to work a community court or do a community court because they said that they weren't social workers. In my opinion, if we're really trying to keep people from committing crimes or reduce crime, then, and we know that a community court is more effective, if we know that the rate of recidivism goes down by 30% over incarcerating people, if we know that it costs less to put someone through um, alternative sentencing, you know, and to make them, you know, get a GED or to um, get substance abuse treatment or whatever the case may be, if we know that that works, then why would we be opposed to it? And so um, for me, it was that. It was wanting to make a difference. And over the course of my career, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Like, if I'm not making a difference if in a positive way, right, not a negative difference, if I'm not making a positive difference, then I don't want to do it. I'm with that. I'm with that. 
I'm not even going to say who's going next. As, I, 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 would say, I would say as an, as an English professor, it's like, I think even the idea of an origin, a single origin, mm. <laughs> I'd like to trouble that idea a little bit because, you know, we're complex it. human beings with yeah. so many different um, ankles and vertices about how we approach both what we're going to put into the world and what is it in the world that needs our attention. Mm. But I guess if I had to... Focus on one you origin. You don't have to. The level of complexity right. with that one. <laughs> right. the listeners, they can handle it. Yeah. One origin point for me would be that I started my PhD at Georgia State University in 2008. And if you remember what 2008 was like in this oh, country, right? right? Yeah. This, you know, this yeah. just... People, friends losing their homes, yeah. you know, yeah. people out of work, people without health insurance. And here I was getting a PhD in Renaissance literature. And you don't do that to put food on the table. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. You do that because you are able to live a life of the mind. Yeah. And I think for too long in this country, and really in Western culture, we've had an idea of college as this ivory tower. And think about all the racial implications of ivory. Yeah. But also just the idea that like the ivory tower is somehow, if you're in college, you have this impermeable and impractical wall around you. Mm-hmm. We have, we have to smash that metaphor mm-hmm. because we that those walls need Come to, to Sarah? They, yes, well, they, <laughs> those, that that ivory tower has done so much harm, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. That idea mm-hmm. of it when in fact the things that happen inside Winfield's classroom at Morehouse, I hope inside my classrooms, both inside the prison and at Emory, those are moments that help people connect with what makes them the most deeply human. Mm. And it also connects them with other humans around them. So to start this work, a PhD at that time, I thought this can't be about a coterie audience <laughs> that's going to be studying Shakespeare and Mil- John Milton, right? And this niche period. It has to be something that's going to alleviate some suffering in this world. So that's when I started, 2008. I started teaching in the prison. Can I just pick up on something you said? Mm -hmm. One thing that I have that has really sort of been impactful for me is that when I'm teaching at Morehouse, I will often have students who say, you know, before I met you, I never considered um, practicing law because I didn't think that I could do it. I never Mm -hmm. met an attorney before I met you. And then when I go in to the prison and at first, and I had one of the students come up to me and he said, you know, I never was exposed to anyone that had a college education before. And if I, if I had met you earlier, Mm. I think my life would have been different, you know? And so it's like the same conversation at Morehouse and in the prison about this need for exposure and Mm. access, Mm. right? that doesn't always happen to people of color and to mm. people on the lower end of the socioeconomic world. I'd even tie that back to Sarah's point earlier about the impact of proximity. Proximity, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. 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 Wow. Ellie? It's on you. Oh. I'm so glad I ain't got to answer these questions. <laughs> yeah, you ask these hard questions. So, um, <laughs> origin, I feel like I say this every time I get interviewed, but it's the truth. Um, so I'm a child of a formerly incarcerated mm-hmm. parent. So I spent my entire adolescent years visiting my father in Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York, which at that time and still is one of the worst state yes, prisons indeed. in the country. Um, my father, unfortunately, was not arrested when he was in his 20s. My father was arrested in his 40s. Oh. He was charged with crimes that he allegedly committed years prior to his arrest and happened to be walking while black and had a certain gait and a police officer recognized it and asked who he was. And so I came home from kindergarten. My dad was arrested and 
I learned that he wouldn't be here for a while. And so um, visiting Attica growing up with my siblings, my parents divorced while my father was incarcerated, and the devastating impact it had on my family led me to this work. I was actually an educator before I became a nonprofit executive in criminal justice. So my goal was to be the next next Marion Wright Edelman and of the Children's Defense Fund, but she got that job first because she's older than me. Um, But to really transform the education system because I saw education or the lack of education as a barrier and, and as a cause for what was happening in the system. So I came in this way two ways. So when she talked about it, it was a complex answer, mm-hmm. one was seeing the problem in the education system, which is what I went into to eliminate this whole prison pipeline that's happening. But more in a personal level, this is very personal to me. I didn't want to see any other children have to visit their parent in the system. Yeah. And we are still seeing it. And, and the product of that is that the statistics show that those very kids that have an incarcerated parent, more likely one of them will end up mm. incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And in my family, it did. Mm-hmm. There were four of us. My brother ended up in the system. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's personal. So my origin yeah. really happened when I was five. And continue in my age now to deal with just talking to people and making them understand that the crime, my, crimes my dad was accused of, it was that's what he was charged with, but it wasn't the person that was in the courtroom. Mm. Nobody told the story yeah. of who he was. And so his public defender didn't do that. And so I groom and train and mentor and support public defenders to understand that they have a voice because they amplify the voices of the people they serve. My dad mm. didn't have that. So that's why I do the work I do. Mm. That's a cape. Do you, that's a cape right there. That's, yeah. that's powerful. Yeah. It's just um, because I know the story and how impactful it is. Mm-hmm. Could you just share with the listeners what it was like when your dad did return home? Oh. What's good, Wild Black Family? I know you had to feel that episode. There was a lot of great information shared. I know some of it might have been triggering. Some of it might have been eye-opening. And I know you are sitting there right now waiting to hear more about Illy and her father. It's coming up next week. And I promise it's the kind of information that is going to touch you somewhere deep inside your heart, your mind, and your soul. It's powerful. And it helps you to truly understand the origin of Gideon's promise and why she does what she does so damn well. I hate to tell you you got to wait till next week, but you got to wait till next week. So we'll see you then. Peace. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.